So one of the things that uh, I was kind of struck by doing that practice, and I think one of the things, well, I suppose that kind of touches me when I think about death really is, when you have that experience, one of the things that happens is you get a sense of what you appreciate. Um, so, in that vein, I'm going to say a few things about Priya Vaz. Not dead, mate. <laughs> no, he's not dead, no. Oh, okay. um, yeah, and I know I haven't really said very much about Power in Nirvana Day Festival. So, in a sense, it's kind of like, maybe it's because I actually find Power in Nirvana Day Festival a bit hard to kind of articulate, really. There's this sense of the mystery of what happens to the Buddha after death. This is what, in a sense, the festival is about. It's kind of like, it's the full nirvana of the Buddha. Um, it's what, well, we just don't know, do we? We know his physical form is gone. And it's one of, they say, it's one of the unanswerable questions. The Buddha doesn't answer that question, what, what happens to a Buddha after death? But I'm hoping that Prayavada will say something. Like, I'm not necessarily <laughs> thinking it'll give us an explanation. It might be a bit more of a kind of practical talk. We'll have to wait and see. Um, so, uh, Priyavada has been around the Manchester Sangha a long time. He was very kind of instrumental in the building project at the Manchester Buddhist Centre. He was the kind of foreman of the building project. Uh, he also, after that finished, he uh, headed a team of Builders, so-called builders, <laughs> kind of, um, in in something what was called Martha construction. So, if any of you know the story of Melaripa, Martha uh, is the kind of the taskmaster, the taskmaster that kind of like pushes Melaripa to the edge. And I think they chose the wrong name for that building. <laughs> yeah, that was stupid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Prevard uh, has been the men's mitch convener. So uh, I've got to know him through that. He's a very good friend of mine. Um, and I, I suppose a few things that I really appreciate about Priyavada, so one of them is, is that he's a very loyal friend. Um, I'm really touched by this, actually. Him, that kind of like, the people that he knows, he really goes out of his way to help. Uh, and I think kind of, I don't know about you, but at times I'm quite selfish. But actually when I hear Priyavada, I kind of like, when I hear what, what Priyavada does for his friends, like kind of what he's willing to do, what he's willing to get involved in, and not things that I, that I think he particularly finds easy, um, he will just do that. He'll do what needs to be done for people. I think it's a very strong kind of positive trait for Priyavada. Uh, he's also very clear. I've kind of personally really appreciated when I was doing Mitra study with him. I think, in a way, he kind of helped me to learn how to think. Like, I think I'm more of a kind of feeling, intuitive kind of type. But he was very kind of encouraging for when I did Mitra study with him. Um, yeah, and it, he, he kind of gave me a lot of confidence, really. He gave me a lot of confidence in himself. And, in a way, it's a bit like I feel like I'm in the lineage of Priyavada, so Priyavada being kind of one of the mixed conveniences that has come before. Um, and I think in, in that, 
do think I do think he's a sort of person that puts himself in difficult situations. I don't know why he does that necessarily. It's a bit like there's this sort of mag magnet in him that just kind of attracts him to difficult situations. So Priyavad, uh, uh, for quite a long time now, he trained as a nurse, um, and he works in A&E. Um, and it's really interesting to talk to him about kind of like his experiences of working in A&E. I think he has got a little bit of a, a dark sense of humour. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I suppose it's that kind of thing of, again, I imagine he's a very good nurse actually, um, because he's very aware, he's very kind. Um, and he doesn't kind of like he doesn't he doesn't get uh, crushed by sort of challenge really. He kind of like in a certain way. He seems to kind of thrive on it in a way. He does remind me a bit of like when I think of Padmasambha. Padmasambha got that kind of quality of going into the cremation grounds, going into the areas that are difficult in life. And actually, I think Priyavada is a very good role model of kind of doing that in his own life. So I'm really looking forward to hear what he has to say. Um, so I'll come over to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you may as well rearrange yourselves. <coughs> Nice to see you, Frank. Apologies, first of all. I've, uh, I've had a cold. I've had a really sore throat the last couple of days. I thought, not sure I'm going to be able to give this talk, but anyway, here I am. Should work. Okay. Thank you for that introduction. I've not given a talk at the Buddhist Centre for quite a long time. Uh, it's not a sort of full Dharma talk. I've no idea how long this is. It might be quite long. I don't think it's too long, but I've just kind of written it out because I'm a bit out of practice, so you just have to bear with me, all right? Um, the purpose of this talk, why I volunteered to do this, uh, initially is selfish. Um, it was in order to force myself to reflect so that I'd have something to say to you a lot because it'd be a bit embarrassing otherwise. I have been ordained quite a while, nearly 20 years. I am no longer a young man. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm middle-aged. How about that? I've <laughs> been making lots of that, uh, jokes with Vajinata about this sort of thing recently. He's been with us for a couple of days. Um, my hair is thinning. My waist is thickening. My eyes are starting to go. Uh, I'm assured by my optician, I've been assured for the last three years, I think, that I'm going to be, need glasses next time I go. I've got away with it each time so far, but I can tell I'm getting to that point where... I'm going to need him. Uh, hair grows out of my ears and my nose. It didn't used to do that, but now it does. <laughs> Time is getting on. And what have I got to show for all those years of practice? Hmm. Well, in many ways, I could say not a lot, really. Um, you know, but then I suppose for the past eight or nine years, I've kind of been on a bit of an orbit and I've not been, you know, not been that involved with the centre. I have maintained links with friends, uh, particularly some friends in the order. Uh, but I have been out and about earning a living, training as a nurse, and then, yeah, I've passed two and a half years or so uh, working in A&E up in Oldham. Caught up in the madness of working in A&E in Oldham, and I use those words advisedly, it's completely mad sometimes. Yeah, it's just mad. <laughs> That's about all there is to it, really. Um, so, yeah, so I have grown lazy. Um, I meditate sporadically. I reflect haphazardly, um, reflect upon the Dharma I'm talking about. 
And, you know, as I say, I don't have a lot to show for those years of practice. I'm not enlightened. I know this. <laughs> it's quite obvious. Uh, as far as I can tell, I don't possess insight into the, uh, into the Dharma, not you know, insight in the sense of being irreversible uh, in terms of moving towards enlightenment. But at the same time, um, the Dharma is sinking in. What the Buddha went on and on about, you know, impermanence, suffering, conditionality, it seems patently obviously true to me. Uh, I can see it within me and I can see it around me. Um, perhaps particularly at work, dealing with people who are sick, uh, who are ageing. I don't know how many times during the course of one shift I'll be set, you know, someone will say to me, don't get old. You know, it's just over and over again. You, you hear these words, people who are just kind of caught in the hospital system, who are suffering and people who are dying. A lot of people do die in A&E. Uh, and they're suffering as a result, and their family members are suffering as well. These, you know, this, these truths that the Buddha was talking about are obviously, you know, they're there. They're obviously true. Um, what I've got to say is mostly kind of practical and concrete in nature. I won't be elucidating many uh, nutty dharmic formulations. Uh, I won't be explaining the distinction between parinirvana and nirvana, basically because I can't. Um, you know, enlightenment uh, with, uh, with a, without remainder or enlightenment with remainder what on, earth, what on earth does that mean it is actually something I've thought about a lot uh, for more than 20 years now it's um, you know it really bugs me and I still, I still don't have a clear what on earth is that going on about um, yeah I mean why, why puzzle about it I've, I've, I've personally never come, come across an explanation of those terms that makes any real sense um, and that does irritate me I've sat in the audience on many a Parinirvana day listening to talks usually where somebody tries to tell you in a potted version you know, this is Parinirvana day and the difference between Parinirvana and Nirvana is and I just think don't know what you're talking about do you it's just gobbledygook um, that winds me up and I would argue, actually, that's a very good thing. Uh, it's actually a very good thing to have issues like that that really bug you and that you kind of want to find out about, you want to think about. Um, and you should find those things. This is just something I'd just throw out, a suggestion. Find those issues within the Dharma that are opaque to you, that don't make sense, that, that do wind you up, that you can't make sense of. And even if 20, 30 years later you don't have a useful answer, even a useful provisional answer, uh, the process will have been useful for you. Trust me, you know, just, just find those things and, and explore them. If the distinction between Parinirvana and Nirvana does irritate you like it irritates me, try reading... Uh, it's, it's quite an interesting book, and an interesting author, Richard Gombrich. Try reading him. And there's a book he's, he's written called... I think it's his last book, What the Buddha Thought... Uh, there's some stuff in there about this area which is very thought-provoking so yeah have a look at what he's got to say about that so anyway, what am I going to talk about tonight? well, death of course oh great, <laughs> a whole day of death <laughs> yes, we're going to get more of it because um, for me this is the real significance of Pari the Parinirvana day um, the Buddha died sorry to say that, he died he pegged it, he cupped it he kicked the bucket he died. He got old, he got sick, and he died. 
sorry if there's some of you here who don't get some of those colloquialisms. You know, we have a lot of them in English. Sometimes I will just throw them out. Um, but yeah, he got old, he got sick, and he died. Enlightenment does not mean that shit stops happening. I'm sorry about that, but that is the case. It happened to the Buddha. Buddhism isn't a kind of wishy-washy, new age, quasi-religion that claims that nasty stuff will stop happening to you as long as you just get enlightened. It doesn't say that. That might surprise you. It might surprise you because, you know, isn't Nirvana the ultimate bliss? Uh, what about deathless, which is a synonym for Nirvana? What about the pure land? These are images. Yeah? They're symbols for the enlightened state of mind. You can't take them literally. I'm very sorry to tell you, but you know, if you're a good little Buddhist, one day you're not going to float off into the clear blue sky and go to heaven. It just doesn't really work like that. The Buddha, he was enlightened, he got old. His back ached. You know, it's in the suttas. He, he talks about the fact that his back aches. Yeah? It caused him a lot of trouble. Hananda used to give him massages yeah? when he was an old man. His mates died, and he missed his mates. You know, that's in the suttas. Sariputra and Moggallana died, and that affected the Buddha. Um, during his last rainy season seat, uh, retreat, you know, the last one of his life, and he used to spend uh, the rainy season each year in India on retreat with a couple of close disciples maybe, or sometimes on his own. During his last rainy season retreat, he got the bloody flux, and he had sharp abdominal pains as if he was about to die. Yeah, he got ill. He got seriously ill. On his last day, he got food poisoning. Given to him by an unfortunate disciple. <laughs> he must have felt terrible afterwards. Poor old Chunda. Uh, he got food poisoning. He came down with dysentery in Kusanara. And then he died of it. He was still subject to sickness, old age and death, despite being enlightened. The important point is, that though all these things happened to him, he dealt with it very differently to how you, and well, I can certainly say I, would deal or do deal with these things. Uh, and as, as an aside, um, I got dysentery in Kusanara too. Um, when we were on that, uh, we did a pilgrimage from the MBC, the Manchester Buddhist Centre back in, was it 2002? long while ago, 2002, um, whilst, whilst we were in uh, uh, Kusinara visiting the, the site of the, the, the Mahaparinibbana, I had dysentery. And I kept reflecting to myself as I was squatting in yet another um, drainage ditch by the side of the road leading up to the Mahabodhi stupa. This is probably as close as I'm going to get to the experience of the Buddha. <laughs> as I was avoiding my bowels for the 30th time of the day. Unfortunately, that's probably still true, but there you go. Anyway, yeah, the Buddha dealt with sickness, old age, and death very differently to how you or I may deal with it. And this is what I think is important about Parinibbana Day. Uh, and it's what's important about the Maha Parinibbana Sutta, which is the account of the last months of the Buddha. If you look in there, it's an incredibly valuable resource of examples, you know, examples of how he deals with the problems of getting old, getting sick, and dying. Um, yeah, it just gives us loads of examples. At the start of the sutta, he knows what's coming. And does he say, you know what, Ananda, 
I'm going to take it easy this year. I'm probably going to die, so, you know, I think I've done my stint. No, he doesn't, does he? He sets off on an exhausting tour of his disciples. He decides he wants to try and see as many people this one last time. And he just kind of wants to set them up for the fact that he's going to die. He knows this is going to have a big effect on them. He sets down rules for the monks and the nuns. He's, he gives practices to the lay followers. And he just walks, walks about visiting as many people as he can, giving talks, encouraging people, exhorting people. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, when Chunda the blacksmith gives him the meal that gives him food poisoning just before he dies, does he get annoyed about it? No, he does not. Would I get annoyed about it? Damn right I would. <laughs> I'm extremely upset. Uh, he does his best to cheer him up. He does his best to give him a positive slant on what must have been a very difficult uh, occurrence. And I do wonder how poor old Chunda felt about himself afterwards. Poor guy. He greets literally hundreds of local people when he's on his deathbed. Yeah, he doesn't sort of say, look, <laughs> keep him away, I'm dying. He greets hundreds of people. Where the list is, just goes on and on and on. And in the end, they're kind of having to bring them in in family groups because there's so many people wanting to see him. And the time is approaching. He ordains somebody into the, uh, into the order just before he dies. Bring him in, sorts him out, ordains him, sends him off. You know, this is the man who's dying. Um, he encourages Arnada, his cousin, as an attendant, um, who understandably is devastated by the impending death of his, well, his dearest friend, basically, who's been looking after for years and years. He exhorts his followers one last time, then he dies. And the thing I think about, the thing I think we should all think about, is like, how would we do? You know, how would we act in that situation? How would we deal with that? So yeah, Parinirvana Day is a time to reflect upon death. Um, how the Buddha died, uh, his example. And to reflect upon our own deaths and uh, the implications of the fact that we will die um, for how we live here and now. Because it does have implications, obviously. That's what I'm going to be talking about. So nothing new. And you know, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to explain things very fully. I'm going to throw out suggestions, give you threads. And if they interest you, I'll give you some clues as to where to go up, you know, where to go to sort of take things further. But in the end, you know, it's up to you to follow these things up. I'm also going to touch a little bit on rebirth. That's just sort of part of, what we're going to, part of where we're going to come to. The basic point that I'm making, though, is that death needs to be an issue that's present in our lives. It, you know, it actually needs to be an issue that we have present in our lives. Bhante says somewhere, um, I don't know where, I can't clearly remember exactly what he says. It's always the way when you think about quotes, isn't it? Um, but he says something along the lines of, our death is uh, the one fact of our existence upon which we can completely, uh, unconditionally rely we are going to die. No, we cannot avoid this. And so will everybody else. And I think, as uh, Articotu uh, mentioned earlier, it's what actually makes us human. It's a kind of defining characteristic of being human. We're here, we're alive, we're self-conscious, 
it's going to end at some point. We are going to die. So if we're going to live fully human lives, our lives have to encompass this fact very directly. Yeah, very directly. And this is quite a difficult thing to do. And this fact also connects us to everyone else around us. Again, as kind of was illustrated during that Metabhavna and by what Artikatu said earlier. And this, I think, is what the story of Kisagotami is all about. Yeah? Kisagotami's child dies. She goes out of her mind and she goes to the Buddha, hoping that he will restore the, the life of her child. And what the Buddha does is he gives her um, a method, a, seri- a, a question that she needs to go around and ask people. And it's kind of a method whereby what happens is she comes to realise that everybody is touched by death. And in a sense, that is what connects her with everything else that is around her. Having realised this, she then dedicates her life to practising the Dharma because she wants to find a way of learning how to deal with this. Yeah? So that's really what the story of Kisagotami is about. So yeah, we need to be, f- to be aware of death in order to live fully. And I would say, uh, you, and I certainly can say this about myself, I are not fully aware of death. I do not live my life fully aware of death. Um, there's an order member called Arloka who's uh, down in Norwich. He's been around for donkey's years. He's a kind of craggy old guy. Um, and when I was getting ordained, uh, when I was in the process of getting ordained, I used to go on these retreats and sometimes he would lead study on them. And he, he was a real, uh, it's kind of a mine of really interesting images which he went away and thought about well, in this case, this particular image I thought about for years, because you know, it really struck me. And uh, he, he had an image, for, um, an image for our predicament and our kind of response to our predicament. He said, life, basically, when you're born, it's like falling off the balcony of a high-rise, high-rise flat. You don't know which floor you've fallen off. And uh, as we're falling down, what do we do? Well, we're kind of chatting to other people who are falling as well. Oh. Nice blue sky today, isn't it? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, there's a strange concrete thing down there coming, very f- coming towards us very fast. Blah, 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 blah. This is kind of uh, what, he, what he was talking about. And it's like we're having these conversations as we fall towards the concrete flagstones below us. That image um, kind of became more graphically real for me. I must admit, when I watched the 9-11 footage, which is quite, you know, it's just horrible, isn't it? There's poor people falling from that building. But, yeah, they knew what was coming. Uh, we don't. We don't know which floor we've gone out of. We don't know how long we're going to last. Anyway, think about that one. Death, for the Buddha, however, was a very vivid problem before he became enlightened. Yeah? It was a very vivid problem. <coughs> Death was the third of the four sights which he saw, which provoked him to go forth from the life that he was living and to go in search of some sort of answer to these well, to the sights that he saw. It was also a very vivid problem for his contemporaries and uh, for those who became his disciples. Sariputra and Moggallana, for example, were searching for the deathless because death was a problem for them. And they met a chap called Ashvajit. And Ashvajit was one of the... Well, he'd actually not long since become one of the first disciples of the Buddha. Shariputra met Ashvajit, and in that conversation he realised that he had found the way to the deathless. 
And he went off and found his friend Moggallana, and they became disciples of the Buddha. Death was a real problem for them. But for them, death alone uh, was not, was death, death on its own was not the whole problem. Um, it existed within the larger context of rebirth. Uh, so I want to say a little bit about rebirth and what it might have meant to these people. Rebirth for these guys wasn't a kind of cosy fantasy about continued existence after death. You know, isn't that nice? You know, you die, but that's not the end. Something else goes on in the future. Rebirth for these guys, it was a kind of awful, and I can't really uh, overemphasize awful, <laughs> strongly enough, visceral, terrifying vision of existing life after life after life after life, a kind of endless chain of lives. Conception, gestation, birth, infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, ageing, death. And all the problems and the dangers associated with each of those stages. Which is something, you know, since I've been working in A&E, I've become more and more acutely aware of. Just like, how blooming dangerous it is to be alive. It's shocking. It's amazing that we, you know, we, we, we survive conception, to be perfectly honest. But anyway, I'll touch on that again later. So these stages which we cycle through or which they saw us cycling through again and again and again are all inextricably linked with danger, with loss, with violence, warfare, famine, disease and ultimately death over and over again. So in the suttas you get the Buddha asking them, how many oceans of tears, how many oceans of blood do you wish to shed? before you finally sort this out. Obviously not in quite those words, but you know, something like that anyway. But just think about that image, you know, oceans of tears, oceans of blood. In the early Pali Canon, um, which is the stuff I, I, always get myself, I always find myself drawn to, particularly the old parts of the, the Sutta Napata, you get this image of beings being caught within a great flood, about to be swept to their destruction, a great flood and they're desperately seeking an island. Did you watch the, uh, the footage of the tsunami in Japan last year? Because that's kind of, it just like when that was going on, that's what it brought to mind. It really just made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. What struck me most was the kind of awful inevitability of that water as it just kept moving and moving across farmland, through buildings, sweeping people away, sweeping cars away, sweeping ships away, sweeping whole, you know, it was just, it was the inevitability of it. You just could, you know, it just wasn't stopping. Did you see the footage of the cars on the embankment road that was kind of parallel, that was kind of perpendicular to the advancing wavefront? And those cars driving, no, no matter how fast they drove, none of them got any further away from the wave. In fact, it just closed upon them, and in the end, it just carried them away. And I was just like, I just thought, well, you know, that's what the Buddha was going on about. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe had some sort of a He'd heard about tsunamis or something, and he had that image in his mind, but it just kind of, it really graphically illustrated it to me. Did you see the, um, the uploaded mobile phone footage of the people in the cars who were just filming the wave coming towards them before they were swept away? I, I, I saw a couple of those, that were, that I showed them on the news, and it's like, I was actually quite impressed by them. I just thought, you know, sticking a finger up at you know, your inevitable doom. 
to be able to do that is quite something, rather than just like, what would I do? Oh my God. <laughs> and maybe do mobile phone. Here it comes. <laughs> Amazing. But yeah, um, that's how they, that's how the Buddhist disciples and his contemporaries experienced rebirth. You know, it wasn't a cosy fantasy. It was something horrifying. It was this flood that was going to carry them away again. To die unenlightened means to be swept away again, and who knows where you will end up. That's how they saw it. Perhaps in our culture, perhaps now, perhaps where we live, uh, the prospect wouldn't be so bad. Uh, endlessly cycling, cycling around what I think of these days as the mediocre loca, and the, um, the banal realm. <laughs> I'll find myself again and again in the staff room at A&E in Oldham. And, uh, I, mean, I get on well with my colleagues, but they're discussing last night's X Factor. Emmerdale Farm, Celebrity Big Brother, and the telly's always on. And of course, what is it? The, the Jeremy Kyle show. How fascinating. <laughs> or Bargain Hunt, even better. <laughs> or Helicopter Heroes. It's just like, it's just so dull and boring. I mean, it's not so awful, I suppose, but, you know, it's bearable, but it's pointless, isn't it? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you, need to, you need to sort yourself out, sunshine. Is this what you want your life to be about, right beside you? Huh? I'm saying this to you now. <laughs> Is this what I want my life to be about? They must be on some level, because why do I keep ending up in situations where this sort of stuff happens to me? Because it does. You know, I don't just gravitate towards difficult situations. I gravitate towards strikingly boring ones. Anyway, there you go. Hey. Yeah, so to be honest, it is pretty awful, but in a rather dull sort of a way. Yeah? A muted kind of fashion. For the Buddhist contemporaries, as I was saying, rebirth was a great horror. Yeah? It was something to be terribly afraid of. And uh, it really kind of ups the ante on the problem of death. Um, it acted as a goad, a spur for them to practice. So what does it do for you? What does it do for me? What is your relationship to rebirth? I'm not, uh, I'm not saying here um, that you have to believe in it to be a good Buddhist. Uh, I'm not seeking to persuade you of its validity. I'm not bothering to try and explain exactly what it is the Buddha himself may have meant by rebirth uh, or rebecoming. What I'm advocating here is that you... I think it's something we all should do. You just go away and explore your relationship to it. Something the Buddha goes on about, the Buddhist tradition goes on and about, on and on about. Go away and explore your relationship to it. It's something I've done over the years, and it's it has been very, very valuable. The first thing I kind of discovered was, well, first of all, yeah, I didn't believe in it. It's relatively straightforward. I come from a materialist. Kind of rationalist background, and that's kind of my that's kind of my default position. Rebirth, I've got no evidence within my experience. Don't believe it. Um, my other default is to be nihilistic. Uh, that's one for you, young man. You like nihilism, don't you? Death is, you know, death is the end. Life is meaningless. Get to the end of it. Doesn't really matter if you've not made any progress. As I've explored this and explored my own kind of relationship to that idea, I've, you know, I've basically come to the, the realisation, yeah, it's an immature response 
to the painful aspects of life. That's certainly got work, you know, how it works within me. And it needs to be left behind. Um, reading around about uh, rebirth, I've come across some very, very interesting stuff and really quite compelling evidence for the belief in rebirth. Uh, I'm not saying I'm entirely convinced yet, but there's been quite a few things I've come across that have really given me pause for thought. There's one book I'm going to recommend to you if you're interested in this area, which I think you really should read. It's called Life Before Life. I don't know if you've come across it, by an author called Jim Tucker. I'm not going to say anything more about that, but I did check it out. It's, on, it's, you know, it's for sale on Amazon. It's nine quid. No big deal. And it's a really, it really kind of uh, shook me up, actually. Uh, it gave me quite a bit to think about. So it's basically about kind of past life uh, recollections and memories and things. Very, very interesting book. So these days, after thinking about it a lot, I've come to realise that I can't be sure about what happens after death. Although I'd like to, you know, perhaps, you know, my default position is to like to think that death is the end. I can't be sure of that. And I can see very clearly what a useful spur to practice it is. I can see that very, very clearly indeed. Anyway, it's kind of work in progress for me, but I suggest that you do the same thing. And uh, if it does interest you, get that book that I mentioned, Life Before Life. If you do believe in rebirth, if you're sort of quite smugly sitting there thinking, well, rebirth's not a problem for me, I believe in rebirth, is that belief that you hold actually what the Buddha was talking about? Yeah? There's a lot of kind of beliefs in rebirth out there which don't really match very closely with what the Buddha was talking about. Or is it a bit more cosy and new energy? You know, the nice idea of kind of a personal immortality. So, you know, just think about that, explore that, find out. Or are you a grim old nihilist like me? If you want to explore this area further, there's another rec book recommendation. Try Nagapriya's book. Very good book. Uh, published by Windows Publications. I was going to say Dharma Publishing, but that's not us, is it? Uh, published by um, uh, Windows Publ Publishing. It's called Exploring Karma and Rebirth. Probably on sale in the bookshop downstairs. I didn't check, but it's probably down there. And it is a, um, I, I found it really useful. Again, it's a very good basis for thinking through this whole area of, of rebirth. So do it. See where it leads you. Make it a long-term project. And just keep revisiting it as you gain life experience. You'll find that your perspectives change. And it's very useful to do this. Right, so returning to the main theme. Whether you accept rebirth or not, uh, you're going to die. <laughs> You've still got that problem. As I said before, it's the single kind of defining fact that you can rely on. And paradoxically, in order to live fully, we must live with an awareness of death. So do you do this? Do I? When I look at myself, when I look at others... Um, whether they're Buddhist or not, whether they're order members or not. You know, I find myself thinking about this sometimes in my chapter. Are we aware of death? Mm. I generally have to say, no, not really, not, not very deeply, anyway. I certainly think that's true of myself. We are those people falling from whichever story of the high-rise block that we fell out of, chatting inanely, you know, probably about Celebrity Big Brother or something, as we plunge to the concrete plaza below. I know I'm like that a lot of the time. Well, wake up. Yeah, we need to wake up.
we may not make it home tonight. Which one of you is going to have a heart attack and then develop a fatal cardiac arrhythmia and die? Might be, you never know. Who's going to have a stroke? Fancy having a stroke? Not a nice way to go. Nursed a lot of people with strokes. Who's brewing an infection at the moment? Maybe a little boil that might turn into septicemia, that might then turn into sepsis, that might mean a hospital admission, that might cause you to end up on ICU, that might have you dead within a day or two. Happens quite regularly. Who's going to trip up on the way home? Which of you ladies of a certain age with a bit of osteoporosis are going to do this? Go down hard on your hip. Fractured hip. Fractured neck of femur. A lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of pain, unpleasant procedures, end up in hospital, stuck in bed, not breathing properly because of the pain, not clearing the secretions in your lungs, pneumonia, ICU, death. Which, is, which of you is going to happen to? Huh? Who's going to get assaulted? Manchester is a dangerous place. Poor old Brian was involved in a shop robbery the other, the other week. You know, who knows when it's going to happen to you? I've had uh, a pretend gun pointed at me just, at the, just down the road at the car park. What was my response? I went mad and shouted at them. That was pretty stupid, wasn't it? <laughs> I had 200 quid in my pocket. I don't often have 200 quid in my pocket. <laughs> Who's going to crash their car? Get loads of RTAs in there, ain't road, tra sorry, road traffic accident, that's what we call them, RTAs. Who's going to be run over by a car? We get plenty of pedestrians who unfortunately collide with cars. Who's going to take this talk the wrong way? Who's going to go home and take an overdose? Who knows? Or if not uh, as soon as sometime in the next couple of days, who's got cancer? Who's brewing something that's going to kill them soon? Could be any one of us. We all, and uh, you know, myself included, take it for granted that this is not our time. That we, of course, are going to be the ones who make it home tonight and carry on for a while yet. The reality is, though, that we should be more than a little surprised that we're, a moment, uh, that we're alive moment by moment. Yeah? That is the reality. There's an awful lot that's trying to kill you within you and outside of you. And it's quite surprising that we remain alive. Admittedly, my uh, view is becoming rather jaundiced by working in A&E, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, sort of joking aside, um, not long ago, I was looking after a, a chap, um, quite, quite an elderly gentleman, who basically had suddenly developed a life-threatening uh, problem. Uh, he was... He, he basically was facing the prospect of having to have surgery. Surgery was probably going to kill him. If he didn't have the surgery, he was definitely going to die quite quickly. And uh, all he was saying to me was, but we were going to the beach. And I was saying, you were, but you're not now. I don't know how this was going to work out. You know what I mean? It's like that, that stuff happens. So just think about, you know, when you think about what a, a fragile and complex um, phenomenon human life is, how much can go wrong from the very moment of your conception, because uh, a startling number of the things we seem to deal with in A&E are to do with not long after conception, gestation, before they're born, not long after they're born. You know what I mean? It's like right from the word go, yet you're still breathing. And if you're like me, you know, you're in your 40s and it's like, wow, how did that happen? I think of all the stupid things I've done as well, which could easily have killed me. 
What this, uh, what this puts me in mind of is the, the film Apollo 13. So if you haven't watched that, or if you have watched it, watch it again. You know, it's, a, it's a very interesting film. It's the one with Tom Hanks in. Um, and it's about the ill-fated uh, Apollo mission that goes horribly wrong. And the astronauts are kind of caught in this little capsule hurtling out into space. Um, and they shouldn't have made it back. They should not have made it back. But they did. And the film kind of explores how this is largely down to the Herculean efforts of the team back at Mission Control, working out how on earth they were going to get, get a very complex situation under control in such a way as they were going to get these astronauts back alive and how they succeeded. I felt, well, when I was watching that, I just thought, this is a brilliant metaphor for our continued existence. You know, it's just how it is, really. In the background are our tendencies, our samskaras, desperately trying to keep us alive. Yeah? The bodies are doing their best to fall apart at any moment, and our samskaras are desperately trying to keep us alive, feverishly working up this vastly improbable and terribly uh, complex and fragile concatenation of conditions that is human life and keep it going moment by moment. And if it's actually like that, is it any wonder that at the moment of death we scuttle back to the womb? <laughs> what else are we going to do? You know, that's why it's so difficult to really bring these things to mind. Anyway, what I'm saying and what I've been thinking about is you know, we need to be more, much more keenly aware of death and conversely what a precious opportunity continued living actually offers us. And this is not easy. And I think perhaps particularly not, uh, it's particularly difficult within, within our culture. Uh, a culture which at the moment anyway tends to ignore and deny death and distract us from it. When we see the dead, um, or when we see death, we often see the, the kind of Hollywood sanitised film TV version of it. You know, they look asleep a lot of the time. Okay, it's getting a bit more gory now, but you know, a lot of the time they do look asleep. <coughs> I just, it's trouble working in a &E, it's kind of spoil all those sort of, you know, watch TV and say, they don't look dead, what are they talking about? <laughs> He's just pretending. This is not real, this is not actually how it is. The first time I got a close look at somebody dead, I was in my late 20s, which, you think about, you know, you go back to a, a traditional culture, or even the culture that Ratnasagra came from, exposed to death from a much younger age. I was in my late 20s. Um, it was a friend, not, not someone I was that close to, a guy called Styrica that I was ordained with. Um, he was getting on a bit when we were on the ordination retreat. Uh, he absolutely hated being on the ordination retreat and he was blissfully happy to get back to Norwich and he, he described walking up and down the ring road Breathing in the fumes. Oh, it was so <laughs> I hated it being up there in the mountains. It was so clean. It was horrible. <laughs> anyway, he died of lung cancer. Uh, with complications that involved his liver. And he went a funny colour. And Anyway, so there he was, dead in the shrine. I mean, he wasn't looking his best. It was a Buddhist funeral. We hadn't bothered making him up or anything. And he was just kind of, he'd been dead for a few days. And he was a very strange colour. And he kind of looked like a dried-up husk. He didn't look like the man that he was. You know, there was something else going on there. And it, that, that affected me quite deeply. You know, it puzzled me, like, what happened at death? Being exposed to this sort of thing is what's good about working in A&E. &E. 
death is, well, often it's not very pretty. It's not necessarily particularly gory, but, you know, when we get somebody who's had a cardiac arrest, um, particularly if they're old and frail, and they usually are, resuscitation is a you know, it's quite a violent and uh, invasive intervention. Ribs break. You know, it's not nice. There's blood. It's messy. Um, they open their bowels. You know, they're incontinent, of course. You know, they haven't got control. It's messy. It's smelly. And more, of, more often than not, it's fairly hopeless as well. I think it's... Um, I know, yes, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the things that kind of surprised me when I first got into nursing and then, you know, when I got involved in resuscitation attempts. Because, like, you watch it on casualty and it's like, get the pads on, <laughs> press the button, everybody clear, and they're alive. Wow, amazing. doesn't really work like that very often. That's an absolutely best-case scenario. You've got a cardiac uh, arrhythmia that can be converted to a normal one. Not all of them can. Quite a lot of them can't. Uh, you've got immediate defibrillation. That doesn't happen outside of hospital. To survive, it helps to be healthy and youngish. And most people who are healthy and youngish aren't likely to have cardiac arrests. They're usually old and not very healthy. And if your brain is starved of oxygen for more than a few minutes because you've collapsed uh, uh, outside of somewhere where you can get immediate resuscitation, it starts to die. And what you get back doesn't function like the old person. And it's something to kind of reflect on. We have a kind of, we're kind of in love with our technology and our ability to do things these days. And some of it doesn't really work very well. It's not pretty. When I'm involved in resuscitation attempts, I'm often relieved when we call it and we go, look, we, we can't usefully carry on with this. It's more dignified, you know, let them die in peace. Hospitals are not a good place to die, so take that, take that away and think about that. The more interesting thing about working in A&E is, is, is when you see people undergoing the transition from being alive to dying. That's really quite fascinating. And I'm not saying that in a kind of cold clinical way because you know you're involved with them you're caring for them you're looking after their relatives and their loved one at the, loved one at the same time but at the same time this quite strange trans uh, transformation is, is going on i find that slowly it's kind of driving home yeah i'm going to die i am going to die it's going to happen to me too and this is the kind of thing that obviously uh, i need to reflect upon but you know it's all too easy to slide into the coping mechanism, particularly the dark hospital humour, and there is an awful lot of that, because it's just kind of, kind of hard to deal with, you know. The other thing can easily happen to you in A&E is you become unfeeling, you become closed off. You just become hardened to it all, basically. What you have to remember is when somebody dies, there are relatives, and they're often present, and they often need help, need help to make sense of what's happened. This is especially true when children die, which does happen in A&E. And it's interesting, you know, just how bad we are at dealing with that. Everybody is really affected by that. I think, again, partly within this culture, because we're just not exposed to infant mortality in a way that you would be in a traditional culture. So, you know, our, our ability to be aware of death is blunted by this. Yeah, it's blunted by this. Sorry to kind of rub your nose in it, but it's, you kind of need to sort of think about these things sometimes.
Yeah, so it is difficult to live with death. Um, another vaguely remembered quote from an Irish poet this time, mankind cannot bear too much reality. Who would, do you know who that was, Fajinata? Can you think? No? Ah, I thought you were going to tell me. Never mind, somebody will, somebody will know it. Mankind cannot bear too much reality. But in the end, we must learn to live with death and we must let that association change us. Otherwise, death is going to come for us when we're unprepared. Yeah. Now, while I was thinking about this, uh, I found myself imagining, what's it going to be like when I die? And I thought, I'll act it out for you, okay? <laughs> Just a little entertainment break in case it's all getting a bit too much. So I've got some props. <laughs> a book. Right, so um, there are two characters in this. There's me. Damachari Priyabhadita, and then there's, when I'm wearing this hat, I'm going to get out of here, I'm death, okay? There we go. So yeah, Priyabhadita, death, okay? I can get into this one. Right, so let's begin, okay. Are you, all right, yeah, are you ready? <laughs> Jesus Christ, on a bike you gave me a heart attack. Who are you? Yes, I did give you a heart attack, Priyavadita. Followed by a cardiac arrest. Do you recognise me? Do you not know who I am? We've met many times before. Does the, uh, the hat with the points on it kind of give him clues here? I'm death. I am Yama. I am the Lord and judge of all. I am come to make a reckoning of your life and decide upon your future rebirth. Are you ready? We shall begin. Now, to speed the process up, because I'm a very busy chap, I have some reports that have been prepared for me by my little helpers. So, let's have a look. Where shall we begin? Hmm. Sexual craving. Okay. So, what progress have we made with sexual craving in this lifetime? The usual teenage outpourings. Mm -hmm. We'll put that down to too much testosterone. That's okay. When you got into your mid-twenties, you joined the Buddhist order and you started practicing celibacy. Quite impressive. In fact, two years of Nanagarika. Very good. Brownie points for that. But more recently, how's it been going? You were on retreat at Vajraloka in January, weren't you? How was the sexual craving? Had you overcome it? No. Hmm. Uh, perhaps you'd weakened the tendency. No. Dented <laughs> hmm. uh, the samskara a little, perhaps? I don't think we could allow that either. Scratch the paintwork, perhaps, but that's about as far as we go. Mm, not very impressive, I'm afraid, Provider. D minus. Let's move on. How about fewness of possession? Contentment with little? All right, grew up as a, a youngster in Cornwall, had very little. In the 70s, everyone was quite poor. Okay, you were happy with that? You are happy with the outside life? You didn't need very much. Very good. Moved to Manchester in the mid-80s, went to university, Thatcher's years. You had nothing. You were content with that. Very good. Got involved with the movement in your mid-20s. Had absolutely nothing. Sharing possessions, sharing your money. Not bad at all. How's it going now, though? Job, mortgage, house, 
car, two motorcycles. Oh no, you got rid of one. One motorcycle. <laughs> Load of fish tanks. No, you got rid of them. Oh, we're making some progress then. DIY tools. More DIY tools. More DIY tools. Too many clothes. Too many shoes. Too many coats. What are you planning to do with all those coats? Coats, pre-editor. Wear them in the next lifetime? You muppet. D minus. Okay. Um, let's try this one. Sometimes it kind of, you know, it's a bit of a, um, kind of balances things up a bit for everybody. Insight acquired and wisdom attained in this life. Oh, uh, ungraded. So we've got a D minus, a D minus and a U. Shall we work out where we're going to be reborn? Whose phone is that? Switch it off. I shall just have to uh, consult my little book here. Hang on a minute. All right, D minus and D minus and U. I have to make the print so bloody small. Things, isn't it? <laughs> D minus, D minus U. Ah, table 57. That should be interesting. Table 57, pre editor. D minus, D minus, U. Ah, ah C slug. Good. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Born on the slopes of an underwater volcano. Oh, dear. Ah, within 20 metres of an active lava vent. I shall be seeing you again soon, then, shall I? <laughs> oh, hat comes off. Uh, Yama. Uh, your worship, your holiness, blah, blah, blah. Um, I know that I haven't really made the very most of the considerable opportunities that I've had in this lifetime. But, you know, I've had a shock. I am familiar with meditation. I know the formulations. Given a little time, I could turn it around. What do you reckon? What's a, a month to you, hey, young? You've been around a long time, haven't you? A month? Not a long time? A year? A decade? Yama, please? <laughs> oh dear me, no. Priya, dear me, no. You were only ordained 20 years ago, weren't you? And correct me if I'm wrong, but you spent a month on that retreat studying the Bodhicari Vatara, didn't you? It was with Sona, wasn't it? Now, what is it that Shantideva had to say about me? Can you remember? Not. Shall I remind you? I shall. The Lord of Death waits not for things done or undone. Like a thunderbolt, he strikes me down in death, in health as well as sickness. Bloody, bloody, blah. Need I say more? <laughs> Good. So you just wait there quietly for a minute. I'll set my rough-coated dogs upon you, and we'll be on our way. Yeah. See anyone else feeling a bit peaky? <laughs> <laughs> Serious points, yes. Get to know your death. 
think about him. What you need to do, really, I think, is uh, make a friend of him. And uh, what I've got in mind here is, um, if you've read the Philip Pullman novels, um, the, I think it's the second one, Subtle Knife. In there, Will and La- Lyra, is it? Yeah, Will and Lyra, travel to the realm of the dead, and they meet people waiting on this side of the River Styx, or whatever it is, who are living with their death, and their, le- their death is kind of their friend, and they look after them. That's kind of what I've got in mind. You need to kind of make a friend of death. A bit of an awkward friend, perhaps, but most of my friends are bloody awkward, so you know, what's the problem? Uh, live with them. A very valuable friend. So, how do we do this? Uh, in general, well, you reflect upon the fact of your death. And you reflect upon the opportunities that life affords you. And you build your resolve not to waste those opportunities. So another suggestion. Make use of uh, the, the reflections on the precious human birth, which are in the, the Lamrin tradition, isn't it? Does that sound right? Yeah, you kind of know me. You kind of know more about that than me. Um, use those things as a template. If you if you want to find the actual reflections themselves and and, and really work with them, well, Articator can probably point you in the right direction. There'll be books around. But roughly, it involves um, reflecting upon the good fortune of being human, being self-conscious, able to act. To reflect upon the consequences of actions, yeah? able to create future karma. Uh, not only that, but you're human uh, in a time when a Buddha has arisen in the past. Not only has a Buddha arisen in the past, he's proclaimed the Dharma and he's communicated it to other people, and a tradition has arisen which has brought the Dharma to you. Um, and you're in touch with a Sangha, with other people who practice. It's a very, very rare and extremely fortunate set of conditions. There are various other reflections along here, but take that away and maybe work with it. So look for this within the, the Lamrim tradition, the precious human rebirth. Other reflections that come with this uh, uh, you know, include the certainty of death, and the uncertainty of the time of its arrival. So you don't know how long you're going to have those conditions for. So that's some general ideas. Specific ideas uh, to make a friend of death. Prepare for your death. Prepare for your death. Take the Buddha as an example. In the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he was preparing, well, he was preparing others for his death. And in a sense, that's really what I'm thinking about. Make it easier for your friends and your loved ones when you die. The obvious things, make a will. Make a will. I'll say this a number of times, because uh, people always go, oh yeah, yeah, they said that before, but you know, you never quite get around to doing it. It took me ages to do it, and I've got various friends who haven't got around to it. Just bloody well get on with it. Make a will. Think about it and make it. It's not that difficult, actually. Make and communicate funeral plans. Why, you know, why leave that to your loved ones to try and work out when they're, when they're suffering grief? That's really unfair. Just think about it. How, how do you want to go? You know, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Make it explicit. Write it down. 
Communicate it to those around you. Make sure they know where to look to find those plans and make sure they know who to contact. You know, if you want something at the Buddhist centre, make sure that the, the, the chair of the Buddhist centre has got a copy of it somewhere so that the relatives can come and find that. Yeah? Prepare for your death. And as I said, you probably have heard this every year at Parinirvana Day. Well, this year, do something about it. Sort it out. Don't be so damn selfish. You know, your friends and relatives will have enough to deal with. So think about it. If you're resistant to thinking about it and acting upon this issue, well, explore that resistance. What is that about? Why are you resistant? Do something about it. Here's a little aside. I think we've got time for this one. Um, this kind of occurs to me whilst I'm thinking about the effect of one's uh, death on the people one is close to. If you smoke, stop smoking. <laughs> Please stop smoking. Um, I know it's hard. I know from my personal experience it's really difficult to stop smoking, but just stop it. If you're 30 plus and you have a significant smoking history, you're running the risk of a, uh, a, a lung condition called, it's abbreviated as COPD. I won't bother <coughs> explaining it further than that. Trust me on this one. It's not a good way to die. I've seen it happen a lot. It's not a good way to die. It's a kind of slow, inexorable decline in your lung function. Yeah? And then you get increasing infections and exacerbations you know, bad weather and things like that affect you, and you get repeated hospital admissions. And you'll end up in A&E. And you'll end up in recess, and you'll be kind of... And your eyes will be standing out because you can't get enough breath. And you'll be exhausted because you're using all of your energy just to keep breathing, because your lungs don't work very well, and you're not getting enough oxygen. And your brain is starved of oxygen, so you'll be anxious and weird and panicky and confused. I've seen it time and time again, and the usual pattern once people are on this kind of trajectory is they come in, you know, every few months, every month, every couple of weeks, weekly, and it starts getting to the point where the doctors are going, can't really do much more for this one, we just have to make them comfortable and let them suffocate. And the treatments for it before you get to that point are not pleasant, yeah? These masks that they strap onto your face that force air into your lungs and it feels like you're kind of being inflated. It's re they're really difficult to tolerate. And particularly if you're confused and you know, you're fighting for your breath anyway. It's just, it's just an awful way to go. So please, if you do smoke, you're probably fed up with being told to do it. Just stop it. <laughs> stop it. I know, you know, so I know it's difficult, but it's not good. Particularly, not just for your own sake, but just for your poor relatives, because they're going to get dragged into hospital again and again and again. They're going to have to go to hospital to visit you, and it's just not worth it. Don't go there. Don't do it to them. In the end, you know, it is a lottery. You don't know how you're going to die, and you might be able to smoke like a chimney into your 80s and suddenly drop dead of a heart attack and miss all that, but you just don't know. It is a bit of a lottery, but, you know, give yourself a bit of a chance. Also, you may have a romantic notion about how you're going to die, that you're going to die in possession of all your faculties, surrounded by your loved ones, and gently drifting off into 
your next rebirth or whatever. It doesn't really go like that very often. You know, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but when your body's not working very well, your brain doesn't work very well, and your consciousness doesn't work very well. That's what I see over and over again. You're usually going to be confused, anxious, struggling, unable to deal with it, and you've got all these upset people with you. You know what I mean? Uh, it doesn't necessarily go very well. The only preparation you've got is practice. That's about the only thing that can do anything for you. Yeah? So think about that. Um, one last point. Uh, sorry to raise this issue, but you know, if you do end up with a terminal uh, illness, if you do at, at some point get to the point of palliative treatment where nothing more can be done, uh, you can contact me. Um, there is a lot you can do to control how and where you die and the, the manner of your death um, and where you're, you're, you're cared for. And there is a lot, and I would really recommend this, that can help you to avoid dying in hospital. They are not good places to die, all right? They're particularly bad places to die, I would say. I can't claim to have expertise in this area, yeah? Uh, but I'm interested, and I'm interested in, in being of help. Um, and, you know, I know the lingo, and I know how the systems work, to some degree. So I probably can be of help. If anyone else is interested in helping out in those situations, okay, feel free to contact me. And, you know, maybe we can get something going. Okay, so these are the things uh, I felt that we should give thought to on Parinirvana Day and after Parinirvana Day. Death, rebirth, and making a friend of death. In order to prepare ourselves and those that we love for the inevitable. I just hope you might want to apply some of those reflections to yourself. Okay. Things that I was kind of reminded of was um, when me and Manjanaga was in Priyavada a study group quite a while ago. We had this session on the Wheel of Life. Um, that's some of what the talk kind of like reminded me. It was just like really looking honestly at the Wheel of Life. The Wheel of Life has got a yammer holding the mirror, um, and it was sort of like it, I remember kind of like both of us kind of coming away from that with like this kind of like sense of we well, was a bit blasted really. Uh, I think actually the three of us were a bit blasted because it actually <laughs> felt as if we did actually get a little bit of a sense of what the wheel of life is. Mm -hmm. um, so personally, I really appreciated Prevada as uh, well, in a sense, bringing having a sense of the Buddha as a human being, not just obviously he's an enlightened human being, but actually as well, he's a human being just like we are. Um, yeah, and I, I, I thought there was a lot of kind of pr good sort of practical sort of stuff in there, really. I think kind of sobering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sobering, and actually as well, it's kind of like, well, we see where how we kind of are with that, like, kind of like, well, can we hold it? Are we phasing out? 
but it is the truth. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much for your advert.